All right, let's take our Bibles, please, and uh, open to <clears throat> Revelation chapter 14. The book that we're studying on Sunday night is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's called that because it reveals to us the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially his great work of destroying Satan's rule over the earth and establishing his everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And as we come to chapter 14, the spotlight is very much on Jesus Christ. For in this chapter we see Christ in the process of securing his victory. Now if we think back a couple of weeks to uh, chapter 12, chapter 12 was all about Satan. Chapter 13 was about the beast and the false prophet Together they as an unholy trinity who in the tribulation period have been reaping a harvest of souls through deception and persecution in what could be called the darkest period of world history. And yet as we come to chapter 14, the Apostle John gives us a vision of Christ's victorious triumph over evil as he takes up his sickle of judgment to destroy Satan's rule over the earth. Now, if you look at the back of the chart or the chart on the back of your outline sheet, chapter four, uh, sorry, chapter 14 is in a kind of parenthesis. Comes between the seventh trumpet judgment and the first vial or bowl judgment. It's like a parenthesis that previews, and that's the key word, that previews a number of events that will be fulfilled in the last half of the tribulation. In this chapter, we, we see the redeemed of God. We see the angels of God. We see the Holy Spirit of God. We see the judgment of God. And in all of these things, we see the evidence of Christ's victory. We see some of his agents involved in it and we see the means whereby he achieves it and so with that overview and introduction let's dive right in to chapter 14 in the first five verses we see the redeemed of God and we see that they have a glorious future first five verses as the chapter begins, the spotlight is once more directed onto the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life on the cross to be our Saviour and who will rule upon the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now notice what he's doing in verse 1. We see him standing on Mount Zion. And when you see someone stand on top of a mountain, you know they've, they've conquered it. They've been victorious. And there is Christ standing on top of Mount Zion with, the verse says, with him there is the 144,000. This is the same 144,000 that we were introduced to back in chapter 7. They are believers from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. In other words, they are Jewish believers who came to faith early in the tribulation period. They are the first fruits unto God in the tribulation period, coming as believers at the very beginning of the tribulation. Verses 3 and 4 tells us they've been redeemed, they're saved, 
and throughout the tribulation period, they have been divinely protected by God. And here we have a vision of them having come through the tribulation period. They are standing with Christ on Mount Zion. In other words, in this vision, we're transported into the future to the end of the tribulation period as they are about to enter into the millennium. Now I want you to notice that this passage tells us there are four glorious blessings that are theirs to enjoy forever. The, the 144,000, the redeemed of God. Four glorious blessings. First of all, notice that they stand securely. Verse 1 tells us that they stand with Christ in victory on Mount Zion. And Christ standing on Mount Victory, on Mount Zion in triumph, is the fulfillment of numerous Old Testament messianic promises. For example, Psalm 2, verse 6, God the Father says, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then in verse 8, the father says to the son, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. It's speaking about the millennial reign of Christ over the whole nations of the earth. And he is, he rules over the nations of the earth as king from Mount Zion. Psalm 48 verse 1 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. The great king is Jesus Christ. He rules from Mount Zion, which is on the northern side of the city of Jerusalem. Another prophecy, Isaiah 24, verse 23. The moon shall be confounded, the sun ashamed. When the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his ancients gloriously. Mount Zion is the mountain of the great king. And there he stands, Revelation 14 verse 1, in triumphant victory and by glorious grace the 144,000 of Israel who've been redeemed at the beginning of the tribulation period and who've been following him faithfully throughout, they also stand with him in victory. The reign of terror of the devil and the Antichrist and the false prophet will come to an end. Their doom is certain. The God of this world has been deposed. There is a new king on the scene. The beast is going down. The lamb stands up and his redeemed will stand with him. It's a vision of the future. But John sees it as if it's already done. Nothing could be more certain. There's one blessing that these 144,000 enjoy. They stand securely. Secondly, they are sealed eternally. Second part of verse 1. John sees the Father's name written in their forehead. That speaks of ownership. And it also speaks of protection. Here we see them. They've come through seven years of tribulation in triumphant victory. They're about to enter the millennial kingdom. An earthly kingdom which has been promised to the nation of Israel. Sealed by God, protected by God. Now contrast that picture with the one that was described to us in chapter 13, where the followers of the beast, this is verse 16, 
the followers of the beast receive his mark in their foreheads. And for that, they will drink the wine of God's wrath. But here, the 144,000 who have God's name on their foreheads, sealed by God eternally, they are eternally his, they are eternally safe, they are eternally secure. Notice in verses 2 and 3, they sing loudly. They're sealed eternally. They sing loudly. They're very happy. Verse 2 tells us that John heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, the voice of great thunder. Reminds us of the vision we saw back in chapter 1, verse 15. A vision of the glorified Christ. In all likelihood, this is the voice of God the Father. But then John also heard other voices from heaven, then unidentified but they are accompanied by heavenly harps and heavenly voices verse 3 John tells us that this unidentified group are singing a new song a song that cannot be learned by anyone except the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth which now stand triumphantly on Mount Zion with Christ after tribulation about to enter the millennium now, the theme and the content of the song is not revealed, but it would seem to be a song of praise, sung in celebration of Christ's victorious triumph over Satan and his followers after his second coming and before the millennial kingdom begins. Now, there's no doubt that the 144,000 have endured some terrible things in the tribulation period. And yet they've, been, they've remained faithful to God under incredible duress. And yet how wonderful it is to know that one day all earthly sorrows, theirs and everyone else's, will be transformed into triumphant songs. They sing loudly. And in verses 4 and 5 we see that they are sanctified fully. Verse 4 says that the 144,000 were not defiled with women. Now that doesn't imply that sex within marriage is evil. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 13 verse 4 tells us very clearly that marriage is honourable and the bed is undefiled. What this phrase merely means is that these 144,000 are Jewish men. They're, not, they're, they're unmarried. And they're not guilty of adultery or fornication, for it says they are virgins. Now in the Bible, fornication and adultery are often pictures of idolatry and whilst in the tribulation most of the world is idolatrous most of the world falls down and worships the image of the beast and yet these 144,000 did not they're faithful to their God in a world which is absolutely awash with idolatry and immorality they've been remained morally pure they've remained spiritually pure in their devotion to God their love for Christ there's no other God that they consider. No other lover would they entertain. They follow Christ and only Christ. They follow him wherever he leads them because he's redeemed them. Now let's be clear that the 144,000, they are not the church. Through the tribulation period, the church is in heaven. These are Jewish believers upon the earth and we need to make that distinction. And yet they are redeemed. Just like we are redeemed. And in that sense, we share a lot in common. Like them, we also stand securely, do we not? We stand in the gospel, 1 Corinthians tells us. 
chapter 15. We stand in grace, Romans chapter 5 tells us. And in the gospel of Christ, we're able to stand securely. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like them, we also are sealed eternally. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the book of Ephesians tells us. That's the guarantee of our eternal security. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment that you will be brought safe to heaven. It's like a seal upon us, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And like them, we also can sing loudly. Christianity has always been a singing faith. And it will remain so throughout eternity as the redeemed of God gather around the throne and they sing the songs of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And like them, we also will be sanctified completely. One day, we'll be sanctified completely. When, when I stand before the throne dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning hearts. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. One day we'll be sanctified completely. Nothing bad coming out of our mouth because there's nothing bad in our hearts. Only praise to the Lord. And so, in a sense, what is true of these 144,000 is in a similar way true of us because we also are the redeemed of God and therefore we also have a glorious future. As we come to the next section, the vision now moves from the redeemed of God to the angels of God. Angels of God who faithfully deliver God's message. Three angels appear in verses 6 to 11, each with a particular message to proclaim. Verses 6 and 7, we see the first angel preaching the gospel to everyone. You notice two things. Notice firstly that it's called the everlasting gospel. <clears throat> that tells us the gospel is eternal in its significance. Notice secondly that this everlasting gospel is preached unto them that dwell upon the earth. To every nation and kindred and tongue and people. That tells us the gospel is universal in its scope. Eternal in its significance. Universal in its scope. Verse 6 tells us that this gospel preaching angel flies in the midst of heaven. That refers to that point in the sky where the sun reaches its apex or its highest point. This angel will be at the highest point. Verse 7 informs us that he'll speak with a very loud voice. In other words, what we're seeing here is that Everyone will see him and everyone will hear him as he preaches the everlasting gospel. This is the only time in the Bible where we hear an angel preaching the gospel. During this present dispensation, that privilege is not given to them. That's a privilege given to us. It's to us, that is Jesus' disciples, that Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. It's to us that Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's our privilege and our responsibility. And so this is our task this week, brethren. But at some point in the tribulation, this angel is commissioned to preach the gospel, the same gospel which has been 
preached throughout history. The good news that there's forgiveness and eternal life possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you think back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus made a promise that the gospel would be preached throughout the whole world before the end comes. And it would seem that the preaching of this angel will in some sense assure that that promise is fulfilled. If you look at verse 7, you'll see what is the rightful response to every person, the right response of every person to the God who made them and to the gospel that can redeem them. It says, fear God, give glory to him, worship him. These are imperatives of command. God is a sovereign Lord, therefore we must fear him. Complete awe and reverence are his rightful due. God is an awesome judge, therefore we must give him glory that he deserves. He is our only God and saviour, therefore we must fall down and worship before him. You can't hear the gospel and be neutral about it. These are, these are, these are commanded responses. God commands all men everywhere to repent. You can't hear the gospel in neutral. You can't hear the gospel and do nothing about it. God commands us to repent and believe the gospel. The verse says the hour of his judgment is come. In other words, this is man's last chance. The time for salvation, the time for gospel invitation is almost gone. The opportunity to believe the gospel and receive Christ as Savior is fading quickly. The bold judgments of chapter 16 are fast approaching. Armageddon, the second coming of Christ are just around the corner. The threat of death, the threat of death is a moment by moment reality under the reign of Antichrist. The mercy of God and the, the grace of God gives another opportunity for people to be saved. He, he sends an angel preaching the gospel. This is the, the last and final opportunity. And then if you look at verse 8, we see another angel. A second angel pronouncing the judgment on Babylon. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. This is the first mention of Babylon in Revelation. And this proclamation anticipates the events of chapters 17 and 18, which we will consider in a couple of weeks. But a brief comment at this point may be helpful. Ancient Babylon in Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq, was once a great empire known for its decadence, known for its gross immorality, known for its idolatry. In its day, Babylon was a political and religious powerhouse. And some Bibles believe that Babylon here in Revelation refers to a literal city yet to be rebuilt in Iraq. Others believe it refers to the city of Rome. More likely... It refers to the one world political and religious system that will emerge from the area of Rome under the leadership of the Antichrist. Think back to the Old Testament. Ancient Babylon was founded by Nimrod, Genesis 10. It was the site of the first organized system of idolatrous and false worship, Genesis 11. 
It was an organized rebellion against God and the Tower of Babel was its most pronounced expression. That's what Babylon was all about. That's what Babylon is synonymous with. And in the book of Revelation, Babylon is the term for the Antichrist's worldwide political and religious empire that is in total opposition to all that God is and to all that is of God. Second part of verse 8 tells us that all the nations have been intoxicated and deceived and seduced by this world system headed by the Antichrist. And like a seductive prostitute, Babylon, the system, the, the, the system of, the, of Satan, the Antichrist, leads people into passionate, maddening adultery with a God who is no God at all. And those who drink in Babylon's wine and experience her passions also drink another wine and experience a different passion. Tragically, it's the, wine, it's the wine of the wrath of God, poured out in full strength and in full measure. And so certain is the demise of the Antichrist empire that the word fallen is repeated to emphasize its certainty, Babylon's destruction. And although the great fall will come at the end of the great tribulation, John speaks of it as have, having already taken place. In verses 9 to 11, we see a third angel proclaiming damnation on all the worshippers of the beast. Those who worship the beast, those who take his mark during the tribulation will be condemned to hell with no possibility of salvation in what is a terrifying picture of eternal damnation. We read it here in the scriptures. Verses 9 and 10 talks about their undiluted torment. Verse 9, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in their forehead or in, on his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and, he sh and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Commentator John Phillips has this to say. He says, the message is urgent. It's proclaimed by an angel. It is heralded in a loud voice. It is short. It is blunt. It is plain. It is one of the most unique proclamations in Scripture, for it depicts the horrors of hell in a fullness of details, rare indeed in the Bible. There is no hope for those who worship the beast or bow before his image or receive his mark. They can expect nothing but the wrath of God poured out upon them in undiluted strength. Not only is the wrath of God poured out upon them in undiluted strength, not only do they endure undiluted torment, it's also an undying torment. Verse 11 says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whoso receiveth the mark of his name. Their torment begins on earth. The judgments of God, the judgments of God, the great tribulation raining down upon them. It's impossible for them to rest. Their days become a long horror of anguish, but their nights become nightmares of torment. And then after that, their torment continues into eternity, into the fires of hell. There's no respite. There's no reprieve. It's an awful eternity of woe. And yet God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He's not willing. He's not, he doesn't want anyone to perish. But he wants all to come to repentance. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ to die upon the cross. And that's why he repeatedly warns sinners, even at the last moment, 
Even at the final hour, he's continually warning sinners of the damnation that waits them, gives them opportunity to repent. In verse 6, the first angel preaches the gospel, inviting sinners to come to God. The second angel, verse 8, warns people about the, the Babylonian system. It's about to be destroyed. And if people then persist in their sin after God's kind invitation and after his warnings of judgment, then they only have themselves to blame. It's at this point that there's an abrupt transition from those who are unbelievers who will be eternally, eternally tormented. There's a transition to those faithful believers in the tribulation who will be suffering for their commitment to Christ. Yes, there will be great suffering even for the saints of God in the great tribulation. God's judgment is being poured out upon the, the whole earth. You know, every plague that affects the earth affects them as well. And in addition to that, there is the Antichrist persecution against them. Many believers in the tribulation will certainly lose their lives. But there is also this. There's also the Spirit of God who continues to help and assure the saints. Helping them to persevere, verse 12. Assuring them of their reward, verse 13. <clears throat> now, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the tribulation period is a point of interesting theological discussion. Some say the Holy Spirit is not present or active in the tribulation period. But that's not correct. We see his ministry here. Now, his ministry in the tribulation is certainly different from his ministry in the church age. But that doesn't mean his ministry doesn't mean he's not active or it doesn't mean he's not present in the tribulation. In the church age, the Holy Spirit indwells the church as a temple. But for the seven years of tribulation, the church has been in heaven. So his ministry to the saints on the earth during the tribulation is going to be somewhat different. It's much, much like the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That is coming upon God's people, enabling them for various tasks, providing help in their time of need. And in the case here, helping the saints to persevere. Helping them to persevere. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Christ. In the tribulation, the pressure is on the saints to receive the mark of the beast. Pressure's on. They can't buy or sell anything without it. The pressure is on. Pressure to conform is intense. So here the saints are encouraged to persevere. They're encouraged not to give in, but to continue to obey the commands of God. Stay true to their faith in Christ. They're encouraged to persevere by a blessing pronounced upon them from heaven. Verse 13. A blessing that John was to write down. A blessing that the Holy Spirit endorses and declares unto them. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit. Yes, martyrdom for Christ is a very real possibility during the tribulation period. It's a terrible prospect. The fear is real. And yet the saints are reminded that martyrdom for their faith is far better than eternal death and suffering in the lake of fire which await the worshippers of the beast. To die for Christ, to depart and be with Christ is far better 
Indeed, those who are faithful unto death, other portions of the scripture tells us, they shall receive a crown of life. There's eternal rewards for those who remain faithful to Christ, which is mentioned in the rest of verse 13. Not only does the Holy Spirit help these tribulation saints to persevere, but the Holy Spirit assures them of their reward. Verse 13b, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, and their works do follow them. Here we see the Holy Spirit assuring the believers that the day is coming when God's faithful people will be rewarded for their labours. There's no doubt that John intends for us to see a contrast between verse 11 and verse 13. Verse 11, there's no rest for the wicked. Not for eternity. No rest for the wicked. But verse 13, eternal rest for the saints. Their labours will be over. Their suffering and their sorrow will come to an end. And as they enter into heaven in triumph, their works do follow them. Everything done for Christ will be justly acknowledged and richly rewarded. And so rest and rewards are the promises of the Holy Spirit for those tribulation saints who have followed the Lamb and kept their faith, kept their faith in Jesus. Which brings us to the final section, which also is also a contrast with God's blessing upon the saints. Verses 14 to 20, see, verses 20, we see the wrath of God poured out upon the earth. Now, the concept of God's wrath being poured out comes to us from verse 10 said, the wine of the wrath of God is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. So we have the image of a cup being full of God's wrath. But now in the final section, we have the image of harvest. We have the image of a cup full of God's wrath about to be poured out upon the earth. And now we have the image of the harvest both of grain and of grapes, which is about to be reaped. The figurative language we understand. Just like there is a time to harvest the crop, so too there's coming a day, a time of reckoning, a day when God will enact his final judgment upon the world. And this passage points out four things about the wrath of God to be poured out upon the earth. Verse 14, the judgment will be by Jesus. The judgment will be by Jesus. Jesus predicted this. In John chapter 5, he said, Father judgeth no man. The Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son. We see the reality of that here. Verse 14, John sees a white cloud. And on the cloud he sees the Son of Man. Upon his head is a golden crown. Not a crown of royalty, not a diadem. This is a crown of victory. This is Stephanos. This is the victor's crown. This is Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of heaven, coming in glory and majesty, coming in power and authority and in victory. This is Revelation 1.7 coming to fruition. Behold, he cometh with clouds. Every eye shall see him. 
the sharp sickle in his hand, indicates his readiness to carry out his judicial role of pouring out the divine wrath and judgment of God on the ungodly at the end of the tribulation period. The judgment will be by Jesus. In verses 15 to 18, we see that the judgment will be on time. Verse 15, we see another angel coming out of the temple in heaven, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thus a thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The Greek word translated ripe there actually means dried up or withered. In actual fact, the grain pictured here has passed the point of any usefulness. It's fit only, it's only fit to be gathered up and to be burned. Therefore, the time has come, it says, for the Lord to reap. Now that phrase there, time has come, indicates that God has a specific appointed hour in which he will execute his divine wrath at a specific appointed hour, not before. It will take place at his appointed time. Remember that's in chapter 6. The, those who have been martyred, tribulation saints have been martyred there. And they're crying, Lord, how long, how long are you going to wait to avenge our blood? The answer is, my paraphrase, in due time. In due time. His divine wrath is to be enacted at God's specific appointed time. It's now. Here it is, it's now. Verse 16 is brief, it's simple. He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. The divine heavenly harvester has come. Judgment day has arrived, cannot be delayed. God's wrath arrives on time. His, his offers of mercy are over. The sowing of the gospel seed has come to an end. Verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. In 18, yet another angel appears. This one from under, from, from the altar. That's the altar of incense which we have seen before is associated with prayer. So here again, one more time, we see there is a connection between the prayers of the saints and the judgment on the earth. God hears the prayers of his people. Many of them not answered yet. Those prayers for justice, those prayers for judgment, those prayers for vengeance haven't been heard, haven't been answered yet. They've all been heard, haven't been answered yet. But the answer to many of those prayers will be fulfilled at this moment in time, right on time. The angel of verse 18 had power over the fire, cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in thy sharp sickle and Gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The word ripe there is not the same Greek word that we saw at the end of verse 15. The word, refer, the word here refers to some, something fully ripe or in its prime. This pictures the earth's wicked people as bursting with the juices of wickedness and ready for a, the harvest of righteousness. A translation, they're fully ripe. Again, conveys the idea that the right time for judgment has come. The time for judgment is now. Not only is the judgment on time, the judgment is 
It will be universal. It will be universal, verse 19. Actually, throughout this section, it's clear that this is going to be a worldwide judgment, a judgment that comes upon the whole earth. Look at this, verse 15. The harvest of the earth is ripe, verse 16. He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 18, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the wine of the earth. And then the climax is there in verse 19, the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. This takes place at the second advent of Christ to the earth. Revelation 19.15 describes it this way. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, for he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. In order for Jesus to rule over the nations, he has to first of all subdue the nations. All nations under his feet. If he is to rule universally, he has to establish his reign universally. There's a judgment that comes upon the whole earth. It's universal. It's unprecedented. The judgment will be unprecedented. Verse 20. It's an obvious preview of the climactic battle of Armageddon, which is described in detail in chapter 19. But actually, it's more like a slaughter than a battle. It's a slaughter beyond anything this world has ever known. Verse 20, and the winepress was trodden without the city. And the blood came out of the winepress, even to the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. The nations that array themselves against Christ will be destroyed. And they'll look like grapes crushed in the winepress. In biblical times, a wine press consisted of two stone basins connected by a trough. Grapes would be trampled in the upper basin and the juice would collect in the lower basin. And the splattering of the juice as the grapes are stomped vividly pictures the splattering of the blood of those who are destroyed. The staggering, horrifying bloodbath that is the Climax of Armageddon will be so widespread that blood will come, as it were, from a wine press up to the horse's bridle for a distance of, in the old economy, 200 miles. Now that's, I got the word hardy, it's just impossible for us to comprehend. And yet for a point of reference, Josephus tells us that when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, by the Roman general Titus, he killed so many Jews that the whole city ran with blood so much that the houses that were set on fire were actually quenched by the blood that flowed. And in, this, in this coming battle, blood will flow in ways that we can't possibly comprehend. It will truly be a just and terrible vengeance and day of judgment a day to avoid at all costs. A, do, a day you can easily avoid if you trust Jesus Christ as your saviour. Friends, you have been warned 
Okay, you have been warned. The horrors of the great tribulation, the greater horrors of hell, the eternal horrors of hell. Okay, you've been warned. I wonder if you understand how much is at stake. How much is at stake? The Jewish evangelist Hyman Appleman said, if I could scare you out of hell, I would. And Charles Spurgeon said a very similar thing. When he preached on this passage, this is what he said. He said, I beseech you, do not risk that doom for yourselves. Escape for your lives. Look not behind you, but fly to the only refuge which God has provided. Whoever will entrust his soul to Jesus Christ shall be saved eternally. Look unto him who wore the thorn crown and repose your soul's entire confidence in him. But if you reject him, do not think it wrong that he should that you should be cast with the grapes in the winepress of the wrath of God to be trodden with the rest of the clusters of the vine of the earth. I beg you to take Christ as your saviour this very hour, lest this night you should die unsaved. Lay hold of Jesus, let you never hear, lest you never hear another gospel invitation or warning. If I seem to speak terribly, God knoweth that I have done it out of love for your souls, and believe me, that I do not speak so strongly as the truth might well permit me to do. For there is something far more terrible about the doom of the lost than language can ever express or thought conceive. God save all of you from everlasting, from ever suffering that doom for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. And to that we also say amen. We, we, also, we, we also say this to you tonight. Don't risk that doom. Don't presume that you'll, never, you'll, you'll ever hear another uh, the gospel ever preached again. Don't presume that you'll certainly have another opportunity to do so. Take Christ as your saviour today. Lay hold of Christ. Entrust your soul to him and he will save you. You'll be eternally saved. You'll be graciously redeemed. You'll be guaranteed a glorious future. All because of Christ, Christ alone. Let's conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us your word, which reveals to us, although it's, there's some terrible things here, that we're thankful that they are revealed to us in the word of God. This is the future is laid out clear, clearly for us. Significant and precise detail is provided for us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us these warnings. And Lord, I do pray that uh, we, everyone here tonight would take good heed to the warnings of the scriptures. Uh, Lord, help us to see what Christ has prepared for those who love him and also what is prepared for the devil and his angels. And indeed for those, all those who would reject Christ. Lord, help us to see what the future is for them. And maybe someone here tonight is in that category. Pray that you'd open their, their eyes to the truth. Break, break down the hardness of their hearts that they might even come to Christ today. Lord, thank you that you've given us the privilege of preaching the gospel. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to fulfill our responsibility faithfully this week. Help us to look for opportunities to speak with someone about uh, what Christ has done for their salvation, how they might be saved of the wrath of God, not just in time, but also in eternity. And so, Lord, I do pray that you stir us, stir us up 
about that. May there be an urgency about us. If people don't care for their souls, Lord, I pray that uh, we would care for them and love them uh, even as you do. Uh, Lord, these are our prayerful responses uh, to the word of God that you've blessed us with this evening. Lord, help us to walk in the light of thy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The final hymn is... uh, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious, and uh, so it is for the saints. Uh, Who's our song leader? I forgot, Paul is going to come and lead us. Thank you, Paul. Hymn number 109.